This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. As Hope mentioned, we are continuing our series this morning called Better Together. And uh, today we're looking at the topic of the church being a countercultural collective which is a bit of a tongue twister, try and say that 10 times fast without stumbling over the words, a countercultural collective. But before we dive into the passage this morning, I wanted to kind of hit pause and set a bit of a, <clears throat> excuse me, set a bit of a, a reminder for us of why we're doing this series. Why is it that we've chosen to address this topic about what it looks like to be the church in a context of a society and a world that is highly individualistic and highly secular. And um, if I'm honest, the, uh, the idea for this series came as I was listening to a podcast by uh, Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer called This Cultural Moment. And the reason that we've done this series is because we want to give you guys confidence about who the church is and our place in culture, in society at the moment. Because the message that we're being told at the moment is that the church is irrelevant that your faith at best is a private matter. Keep it to yourself. Don't bring it to work. It's not welcome in the marketplace. It's not welcome in politics. It's not welcome anywhere, but perhaps inside the four walls of a church building on Sunday, and that is it. The church is irrelevant, is the message that we are being told. And so we wanted to do this series to help give you confidence to be who God calls us to be, that in fact the church does have a place, that faith does have a place in today's culture. In fact... We believe that God calls the church to be a mirror, to reflect, to, to show the culture around us the failing hopes of the secular worldview and to offer a beautiful welcome to the hope of Jesus and the welcome of family as Christian community does life together. And so what I wanted to do this morning is frame this with you with an example that was given um, to help you understand where we're at in Western culture, at least, in the 21st century. Mark says in the podcast, This Cultural Moment, says that every single person has three tanks. We have three tanks, and the first tank is a freedom tank. And the second tank is a community tank. And the third tank is a meaning tank. He says in the West, every single person has one of these tanks and have varying degrees of fullness. In the West, we are spoilt for choice. We have freedom on tap. We have so much freedom, in fact, that we can choose what career we want to do. We can choose what course we want to study. We can choose to travel the globe in an unprecedented sense like generations past us have not had the, the privilege or the right to do. Our freedom tank literally is overflowing. In fact, if you think about the staggering amount of choices that we have when it comes to shopping. I mean, a generation ago when I was growing up, there was one shop, the one surf shop at Westfield. And if you wanted white sneakers, you bought the white sneakers from that one shop and all of your friends had the same white sneakers. That was it. It was like white cons. That was it. White vans. That was it, right? Now, with the emergence of online shopping, you can literally waste eight hours of your day researching types of white sneakers there are thousands of options for you to choose from. We are spoiled for choice. Or even think about 
um, the number of beers that you can get to choose from today. Back in the day, it was an ale, a draft, or a bitter. That was it. Three choices. Now they're like just the amount of ales that are available. A pale ale, an IPA, an XPA, a summer ale. I mean, the list just continues to go on. Versions of beer that you don't even know, like a watermelon saison. What is that? doesn't even sound like beer. doesn't even taste like beer, but apparently it's a beer. We are spoilt for choice, so much so that we actually have decision fatigue and decision anxiety because there are so many choices put before us. Our freedom tank is overflowing. But what about our community tank and what about our meaning tank? Well, in the West, at least, our community tank is very empty and our meaning tank, likewise, is also very empty. Now, the reason is, if you want to have a deep sense of community, you need to make some sacrifices to your personal freedom to do that. You need to forego some of this tank in order to have this tank filled. For example, if you want to experience deep community here at Anchor and be a part of a gospel community where you are known and and get to know others, where it feels like family... You need to forego some of your personal freedoms. I want to suggest to you that you cannot sit on the couch watching Netflix on Wednesday night and experience deep community at the same time because you're simply not at GC at that point. You need to forego some of your personal freedoms for that. If you want to experience church or really any type of community in a real, authentic way, you need to forego the freedoms that our transient culture offers us. We live in a world where people move from place to place every three to six months. It seems like every six months, we have a new neighbor in our apartment next door to us. Every six months, it just turns over. You're not going to develop deep community in a context where your neighbors are moving in and out every six months. The transient nature of our culture and the personal freedoms that we have mean that our community tank is actually quite empty. And likewise, the same goes for meaning. In order to have meaning... You need to have deep commitment to people because that's where meaning comes from. And I also want to suggest you need a deep commitment or connection to something that is transcendent, something outside of yourself. And that comes with a sense of self-denial, of sacrifice. But in a world that is all about self-fulfillment and self-actualization and individual expressionism, we don't believe in any form of self-denial and we are so isolated Uh, We don't have any form of community. And so we have a culture where a vast majority of people, and this is a massive stereotype, I agree, have so much freedom that they don't know what to do with it, but have very little community or very little meaning. Freedom coming out of our ears, and yet we are feeling isolated and lonely, and we're feeling directionless and purposeless and lost. And so what does it look like? for the church to be the church when this is what our culture looks like at the moment. Well, I want to suggest the church, maybe now more than ever, is needed. And in fact, the things that we have to offer are desperately being yearned for by our culture. You see, we are a community. We are a family. James Dawson helped us understand that a few weeks ago as he talked about that beautiful doctrine of adoption, that God calls us into his family. We are a community. We're a people that are deeply invested in each other's lives, being known and knowing other people, sharing our lives together. 
Additionally, we're a people that has a deep sense of meaning and significance and purpose because we believe that God has created us and only created beings can have a deep sense of meaning, significance and purpose outside of themselves. That God has created us for worship and that we only truly understand ourselves and are truly human when we relate to the God who made us. And so what we have to offer as a church is actually profoundly relevant and is what's needed in our culture today. So perhaps now more than ever, the church is needed. What we offer is what the world, in fact, wants. But maybe they just don't know it. But what I want to do this morning is have a look at the type of church we need to be. Because if we want to offer something to the world, we cannot simply be a replica, and imitation of the culture that is around us. We need to offer the very thing that God calls his people to offer, a distinctive, countercultural, holy people. And so my, my hope is this morning is to help us think about our posture towards the world around us, what that looks like to be God's people. So why don't you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4 or Exodus 19, one of those verses. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive straight into God's Word. So let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you're a God who has called us to worship you and you've called us into community and you've given us a deep sense of meaning, significance and purpose in our lives. And Father, we pray this morning as we think about the type of community, the type of people that you call us to be, that you would help us to be comfortable to be who you want us to be in a world that perhaps doesn't align with everything that we believe, the way that we live and the things that we do. God, help us to be comfortable to be different. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. When I was growing up, I grew up in uh, not, not a traditional sandstone church building with pews and whatnot. It was contemporary, at least 1960s contemporary. They had, um, I don't know if you remember those, uh, those windows that were kind of stained yellow with round, looked like jar bottoms through it. You know, like all the doors had these like yellow windows and this orange motley carpet down the middle of the church. And I remember every time going to church thinking to myself, this carpet is disgusting. If they would at least change the carpet, then, then we would start to reach people in this community. If we could just change the color of the carpet to maybe a nice gray, something dark, black, a blue, you know, something like that. Then, or if we could at least just get rid of the 85-year-old organist, then, then we could start to engage some people. And subconsciously, what I'm doing is saying, if only this church was cooler, then we would be able to reach some people in this community. Then all of the people in the Hills District would just start flocking to Jesus at my church, right? What my desire was, was a desire for relevance. I wanted my church to be relevant. I wanted my church, in fact, to be cool. In fact, this week, I, um, I, I googled the term, how can I make my church more relevant? Not because I necessarily wanted that. I just wanted to see what the answers were. And some of the blogs that have been written to help your church be more relevant are humorous. They're so off track. This one blog I came across offered a few suggestions. One of them said, connect with the local community. Good start. Connect with the local community. Their example was start a Facebook group to profile the local businesses in the area. I thought, my goodness, are you guys serious? 
Or number two, their number two suggestion was um, go video. Go video. If you want to be, you know, technology, it's all, kids are all into technology. They've they got to get technology. Let's go video. That'll, that'll make our church relevant. Or this is, seems to be the best suggestion. I cannot fathom why we have not done this at Anchor yet. Start a cooking show. Others seem to suggest that you need to be engaged in social media and you need to change your venue, you need to meet in a cool space and all these kinds of things. The, probably the best suggestion was um, get the ghost. By that they meant, you know, you need the Holy Spirit. And there's some, there's some good things in there. But I came away feeling slightly disillusioned by the suggestions that were offered for the church to be relevant in the 21st century. Now that word relevance... Um, people have different reactions to that word, don't you? My guess is some of you this, this morning, as you hear that word, relevant, there's a slight dry reach that happens in your throat, the word church and relevant together. You think that just equals the church is sold out, soft gospel, watered down, uh, just absorbed the culture. We've given up on everything that the Bible believes to be relevant. But others of you think, well, perhaps that means, um, you know, that Without some form of relevance, we will never engage with our culture. We have to start to change the things that we do, the things that we say in order to reach the culture. Otherwise, no one is ever going to come back to church again. But I want to suggest that there's some healthy things about the desire for relevance, and there's probably some really unhealthy things about that as well. But when we pine after cultural acceptance and relevance as our chief goal, as a church, I want to suggest that we run the risk of being followers of the culture and not leaders in the culture. If we pine after relevance as our chief goal, we run the risk of being followers of the culture and not leaders in the culture. Mark Sayers, in his brilliant book, uh, The Disappearing Church, I cannot recommend it highly enough. For this demographic, for this generation, you need to read that book because it explains the moment we find ourselves in prophetically. It's, it's a brilliant book. In that book, he says this, of the generation that has grown up in the what's called the church growth, the church relevant movement, which is all of you basically, you have grown up in this generation where we've, we've believed that in order to reach the culture, we need to be relevant. He says this, we've unwittingly absorbed the belief that we can maintain both strong Christian faith and social currency within Western contemporary culture with little or no friction. We've believed that we can hold to our convictions and be cool in Western culture with no friction at all. The reality is that the people of God will always clash against the culture around it. That, that has historically been the case. Now the clashes change. The source of the friction and the context uh, and the content of that changes over time and in def- different generations and different cultures. But the fact that there is friction and conflict has always been the case. Our goal here at Anchor is not relevance. We are not, as um, some of our social media trolls have liked to label us, a hipster church. I've been so frustrated with that term. There was, in fact, one person who was kind of trolling us on social media for a while. Even that, I mean... Who has trolls on social media? That's such a random thing. But she kept saying, I'm, I'm not cool enough to come to this church. This church is such a hipster church. And I was so frustrated, I nearly shot back with some really smart aleck comments, but I chose not to. But the reason that that frustrates me is because it's a label that is exclusive. This is not a cool church. 
right? We're the people of God. We're not defined by subculture. We're not defined by the clothes we wear. We're not defined by the building that we gather in. None of those things that define us. We are defined by the realities of the gospel, that we are God's people, that we're a family, that we're missionaries, that we've been adopted into his family. Our goal Despite the fact that we meet in the factory theater, despite the fact that there was some psychedelic porn hip-hop group that was up here last night, despite the fact that there's sometimes pole dancing and glitter here, despite the fact of all of the things that you see, we are not striving to be cool. Our goal is not relevance. In fact, our goal is reverence. Our goal is not simply relevance. It is reverence. Now, additionally, our goal is not irrelevance. We're not aiming for irrelevance as if that's somehow the mark of holiness and godliness and faithfulness. If you really want to be a faithful church, you need to be completely outdated and irrelevant is the goal and the badge of honor. Our goal is reverence. That has always been God's plan for his people, that they would worship him, that they would revere him above all else. It's been his intent from the very beginning that God's people, his his covenant people, his church, the, the people of God, Israel, would be a distinct, holy community. So come back to Exodus chapter 19 with me and see what God says through his prophet Moses. Exodus 19 verse 5 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God has made Israel his treasured, special possession, his special people. And they are separate from, called out from, and set apart. That word, set up, that word holy, that's what it means, set apart, to be used for special holy purposes. God has chosen his people out of all of the nations of the world he has made Israel his, and he has made them holy. But that separateness, that, that holiness, does not terminate on them alone. It has been given for a purpose, and the purpose is that the nations would see and come to worship Yahweh, the true and living God. Because Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. Now the role of a priest was to mediate the presence of God to the people. Israel is to mediate the presence of God to the nations around them. That they would flock to Zion and worship Yahweh. That's the call. You are a holy, set-apart nation and a kingdom of priests. Now as you hear that, you think, well, that sounds familiar. I feel like I've read that before somewhere. And you would be correct. You've read it in 1 Peter. Peter takes these Old Covenant, Old Testament identity statements and commands and he applies them to the New Covenant, New Testament people of God. Have a look at what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Speaking to the churches in Asia Minor, he says this, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, God's treasure, that you may declare, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God's people are a holy people. We've been set apart. We've been called out. 
That was the point of the law in the Old Covenant. And if you realize this, the point of the, the ceremonial law, the cleanliness, the, the washing of pitchers and cups, the mold and mildew in the house, the ensuring that if you touched something unclean, that you had a period of cleanliness, that you didn't interwove different types of fabric together, all of that law existed as a part of Israel's holiness, their set-apartness, their distinctness, their difference from the nations around them. And as Israel was to be different, so Peter calls the church, the New Testament, New Covenant people of God, to be distinct, to be holy, to be set apart from the culture around them. We are a set apart people that embody a radically alternative vision for human flourishing than the culture, than the world around us. We're a set-apart people who embody a radically alternative vision for human flourishing than the world around us. We ought to be different in this world. There will be things that we say, that we believe, that we do, that will cause friction between the church and the culture around us. And if we simply pine after relevance, when that friction comes, we'll just cave. Sometimes the alternative is when the friction comes, we dig our heels in and are so arrogant and proud and self-righteous that the culture rejects us anyway. But we ought to be different. And sometimes we just need to be comfortable with that. Sometimes we need to be comfortable with knowing that to be a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus in 2019 is going to put us offside with the world around us at some points. There'll be other things that the world loves about us. There are things that, uh, where the Christian worldview and the secular worldview line up brilliantly, but there are other things where there's going to be tension and we need to be comfortable. And the reason that we need to do that is because part of the way that God has positioned his people in the world is that that difference is what draws people to him. That distinctiveness, that holiness, that lifestyle is what the people will see and go, ah, oh, I need that. I want that. That's profoundly different. I need to know why that person operates that way. I love the picture that we get in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5, as Moses again talks to Israel about their covenant commitment. He says this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all of the statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, Israel were to be a people of both principle and presence. They had the law, and here the writer of Deuteronomy is saying, this law is open for the nations to look at and evaluate and judge as to whether or not this produces human flourishing and for the good of humanity. 
And in fact, if you think about Western culture as we know it today, Western culture has built its framework and principles on the top of a Judeo-Christian worldview. All of the things about justice that we love in our culture come because of a Judeo-Christian worldview, that we believe in the inherent goodness of humanity. We take that for granted, but that has come because our Western culture has built itself upon the foundation of the Word of God. Now, God has been cut out of the picture, and the remnants of that still exist today. And what our culture tries to do is take the benefits of the kingdom, but get rid of the king. And here, in the ancient Near East, Moses is saying to Israel, the character of your law is what the the nations will look at and say, yes, this is good, this is right, this is just. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, I was reading um, a story that Mark Sayers tells in that book again, Disappearing Church, where a bunch of um, communist Chinese researchers began to research Western culture and to figure out why Western culture had been such a dominant force over the last however long it's been a force for. And they came back and they said, you know what, it wasn't economic practice. It wasn't democracy that led to this flourishing of Western culture. In fact, it was the Judeo-Christian worldview is your faith that has led to this. Now, this is secular communist researchers looking at our culture and saying, this is the reason why this happened. But it's not just that we have a righteous law, that we're a principled people. It's actually that we're also a people of presence. You notice there that it's that the nations would look and see Israel and say, God is near. God is in their midst. God is present. In fact, Israel, if you read the account of the book of Numbers, they camped in concentric circles around the tabernacle, around the tent, around the presence of God. There was no high place on a mountain where Israel trekked up a mountain to worship God. In fact, God dwelt in their midst. And then we get to John chapter 1 where Jesus comes and he tabernacles amongst us in our midst. And then he pours his spirit out amongst us. We are God's spirit-filled people. Jesus would say, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says that the church collectively is the temple of the spirit. The spirit dwells there. We are God's spirit-filled people. And our culture, our world ought to look at us and go, God is there. God is in their midst. God is real. That's what makes us very different from every other group of people that you will see on the face of this planet. Your social group, your immediate blood family, your team at work, your sporting team, your triathlon team, your book reading club, whatever it is, whatever other community or group of people that you do life within this world, the difference between that and the people of God, well, there's a number of them, but one of them is that God is present here. God is in our midst. God is with us. We are the spirit-filled people of God, and we ought to be different. We ought to be distinct. We ought to be holy. We ought to be righteous. So what does that mean for us? in Sydney in 2019? How can we do this? How do we fulfill this vision for the people of God amongst the nations and the world around us? Well, firstly, this I need to say really clearly what this does not mean. 
because some of you will hear this and automatically conclude a number of things. This does not mean that we don't value, and that double negative is so confusing, even as I say it. We don't value uh, beauty and the aesthetic. We value beauty. We value the aesthetic. We value creativity. We, va- we value design. And we love the fact that we have uh, wonderfully talented, creative people at this church who are using their gifts for the good of the culture around them, but also for the blessing of our church. Simply because we're holy doesn't mean we don't value beauty and aesthetic. Does that double negative make sense? I'm confusing myself right now. Someone nod. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Additionally, it doesn't mean that we don't pursue excellence. We value the pursuit of excellence. We value effort, right? Mediocre and does not automatically equal holy. God never called his people to mediocre worship, to mediocre service of the world. Mediocre does not equal holy. We value the pursuit of excellence. And it does not mean that we ignore technology and business principles and all of the common grace elements of our world. We receive them with gladness and joy. Being holy does not mean that we are lame, lazy technophobes, as if we're some version of an Amish community, right? That is not what this means. Our holiness, our distinctiveness is one of character, is one of ethic, is one of moral, is one of love and justice and good works. That's what sets us apart. Not that we use clip art on our church site. So that's not what it means. So what does it mean? Well, I think the church has wrestled with this over the generations. And the pendulum has swung as we've postured ourselves towards culture over the years. For some, we end up on one end of the spectrum. That is, we define ourselves against culture. That everything out there in the world is bad and everything of who we are needs to be separate from this world. So we gather in holy Christian huddles and homeschool children and go to Christian universities and Christian schools and have Christian cats and dogs and a Christian goldfish. And everything is baptized in our life. And we never engage with the world out there. We don't listen to secular music. We don't go to secular movies. That's one end of the spectrum. We're against the culture around us. But the other end of the spectrum is that we are of the culture We see the culture around us. We see the gap between the church and the world. And we think, well, I need to get over there. And I need to be in this and I need to be of this. But what I want to suggest to you is the challenge for us is not to be against the culture, but for the culture. And not to be of the culture, but in the culture. In but not of, for but not against. That's the posture that we're called to as a church. That's what 1 Peter talks about. As Peter unpacks for these people how to be the people of God as a minority in a culture that is pushing the churches to the margins of society. In but not of, for but not against. So let me give you an example of that from the scriptures. Paul is writing to the church and in in Titus, he talks about how he wants the church to be taught. And in particular, to a specific demographic of the church. So in the church, he will address um, all sorts of different groupings of people. And this certain group of people in the church were slaves or bondservants. There were people in first century culture who had come to faith in Jesus 
as slaves. They were property and they were owned. And incredibly, Paul addre- Peter addresses them in his letter, honoring them and dignifying them as a demographic within the church. And he writes to them to live in a completely countercultural way. Have a look at what he says in Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Did I say Peter? I meant Paul. My Peters and my Pauls are all backwards today. This is what Paul says must be taught in Titus 2, verse 9. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching of God our Savior, the gospel, that will make the teaching of God our Savior attractive. Now, as a slave, you would have thought it would have been completely justified in that culture to be an, a piece of property, to do the bare minimum, to talk back, to steal, to do things that are going to benefit yourself. As a, someone who's in a position of injustice, that would be completely normal and appropriate. But Peter is saying, sorry, Paul is saying, live in a way that is so radically countercultural to the way that the culture and your master expects you to act. Be pleasing. Work hard, not just when your master is watching you, but even when they're not. Don't just do the bare minimum. Be trustworthy. Bless them. And what does that achieve? He says there, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Now, in other books of the Bible, Paul will say to a slave, if you can gain your freedom, take it. Here, he's not so much worried about whether or not their, what their status is. His concern here is how they're doing it, how they're living out their identity as a child of God. And he says that the way that you do that is a profound message to your master, to the watching world, and it makes the good news, the gospel, attractive. Now that word there, uh, attractive, is uh, the Greek word. And I don't normally go to the Greek because, um, I, you know, I actually I don't translate my sermons from the Greek to English and then write them. The software that does that for me these days. But uh, this one's cool. The Greek word there is the word cosmeo. And it's where we get our English word cosmetic from. So you think of you know, the cosmetic section as you walk, walk into David Jones or Maya. That's, that's the word grouping here, cosmeo. And what Paul is saying, he's saying that your good works, your character, your, your, the way that you live your life, it is the... That didn't work very well. Let me try that again. It is the... Of the gospel. That's what he's saying. That was, that was really well delivered, wasn't it? He's saying that the way that you live... It makes the message that you claim to believe look beautiful. It's like, you know, a nice suit and a tie and an expensive cologne. Or it's like a foundation, some eyeliner and some deep red lipstick. It just makes the good news look attractive. It adorns it. Makes it look beautiful. Now, please, don't mishear me. I am not saying here that the good news of Jesus is bland, needs a bit of salt and pepper and spices to make it palatable for our culture. That is not what I'm saying. The good news, the gospel is beautiful and glorious, irrespective of my life. 
whether I live in a way that makes it look good or not, it remains stunningly beautiful. The good news that Jesus would cross this universe to die on the cross for our sins, to set us free and offer us a free gift to be received by faith, that is an amazing truth. But what Paul is saying here is that your life, your holiness, your character, the way you speak, the way you act, will either make that message sound compelling to those who watch your life, or your life, your character, the way you speak and act will cause people to think, hypocrite. That's his point. We're not saying that the gospel is bland and needs spicing up. But Paul is saying that the way that you live, it counts. It makes the gospel look good. You know, the reality is that most people outside of Anchor Church and outside of the little Christian bubble that we live in here in Sydney do not give a rip about how good our worship team is. They couldn't care less how on point our graphic design is. They couldn't care how wonderfully gifted our preaching team is because they never set foot in this room. But what they do care about is on Monday morning, the way that you don't engage in the office gossip that's happening. What they do care about is seeing your life and the way that you respond to suffering that occurs to you, even unjust suffering. What they do care about is your character and your words and your love and your graciousness. That's what matters. We're called to be a countercultural community, a countercultural collective. Uh, John Tyson, who is uh, an Aussie butcher from Adelaide who moved to New York and planted 14-something churches in New York, has written a number of books, says this about our culture. He says, sex, money, and power are the idolatrous trinity of our age. Sex, money, and power are the idolatrous trinity of our age. And it's so easy to be formed by our culture on these things. Individual expressionism, self-actualization, they subconsciously tell us how we ought to respond to sex, money, and power. And it's so easy to absorb the worldview around us as we think about these things. But we know that we're supposed to be formed by Jesus. We're supposed to be shaped by the Word of God. Being a disciple is about learning to love and live like Jesus. That's who we ought to be. And so what does it look like to be a countercultural collective when our culture, by and large, worships sex, money, and power? Well, John Tyson says it looks like purity, generosity, and service. If our culture worships sex, pursuing sexual purity is countercultural. If our culture worships money, Pursuing generosity is counterculture. If our culture worships power, posturing ourselves as a servant is countercultural. We pursue sexual purity, we pursue generosity, and we pursue servanthood. That's who we're called to be as God's people. Tim Keller says this, uh, this fascinating quote about the early church. He said, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body 
and practically everybody, everyone, their money. Generous, sexually pure, countercultural collective. Our goal here at Anchor is not relevance. It's reverence. And I want to suggest to you guys today that our reverence for God, our worship of Him, of Him, our pursuit of holiness and righteousness is the thing that is going to make a watching world look at us and say, there is something so strikingly different about these people. I need to know what makes them tick. I have to, I have to understand what is different about this person. Why is there joy in suffering? Why are they generous when everyone else seems to be stingy? Why are they not sleeping with their boyfriend and girlfriend before they get married? That is a profoundly countercultural thing to do. I remember a story that my, uh, my old pastor, Ray, used to tell about an elderly man who um, his wife had passed away. And he lived in a large home by himself, and he wanted to respond to what he saw as a crisis amongst the refugees coming to our shores, not knowing how to plug into Australian culture. And so he wanted to invite someone to live with him. And he invited a refugee to stay with him in his house free of charge so he would help him fill out all the government forms and get a driver's license, teach him how to drive, teach him how to get a job, help him do all these things, get set up in life. And one day this refugee asked him about his God. And the elderly gentleman tried to explain it and kind of got it back to front and upside down and inside out. And he said to him, look, I'm not very good at this. Um, let's just leave this for another day and I'll explain, this. I'll explain it to you some other time where I've got it figured out. Many months later, this refugee came back to this elderly gentleman and he said in his broken English, I'm not sure I fully understand everything about your God. But if your God is anything like you, I want to worship him. If your God is anything like you, I want to worship him. See, in that moment, what had he seen? He'd seen the compassion of God through this man. He'd seen the love of God through this man. He'd seen the generosity of God through this man. That's who we're called to be. A countercultural collective not a people who would simply replicate the world and the culture around us, but a people who would be so distinct and different and holy that our world would look at us and say, truly God is in their midst. Truly these people are living in a way that produces human flourishing. Well, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I hope that you see in this church, in this community, if you hang around long enough, I hope what you see is a people who are radically different from the world around us. I hope you see something compelling and appealing about the way that we live our lives, that there is no, not a, a discontinuity between the things that we say we believe and the way we behave with our lives. I hope you don't see hypocrisy here amongst this community, that we actually practice what we preach I hope you see genuine family here, that, that this is a people who are not gathered together on the basis of, of subculture, 
that this is a church for hipsters, not gathered on the basis of socioeconomic background or racial and ethnic background, but that we are gathered together by the precious blood of Christ, that this gathering of people is vastly different from every other gathering of people in our world. I hope you see something of our affection and love for Jesus. I hope you see something of the transforming power of God's presence in our lives. And our hope is that as you see us, you will see the God that stands behind us and say, well, if your God is anything like you, then I want to worship him. That's our hope. So please stick around and see the the love of God in action amidst our community. Perhaps for you here today, you resonate with the three tanks that your life is full of personal freedom. You've got all the choices in the world. In fact, you've got so many, it's crippling. But you recognize that in fact, there's very little community and there's very little meaning in your life. Struggling with loneliness, struggling with a lack of direction and purpose. I wanna suggest to you today that the church is what you need. The people of God, as imperfect as we are, is what you need. Well, church, that is a challenge for us, is it not? To be that type of community. To be the holy, distinct, different people of God. That we would pursue reverence over relevance. Where is it in your life where you feel the temptation to cave in? Where is it that you feel the friction and want to take a few steps back or make a few compromises in order to make that friction and tension go away? Where is it perhaps that you've caved in and denied Jesus, been embarrassed of his claims and your faith? You know, I think we have a a beautiful example in the life of Peter who in one moment says to Jesus, I'll die with you. And then the next is denying Jesus in front of a servant girl around a fire. And Jesus restores him with grace. says, Peter, get back up, feed my sheep. We're called to be a countercultural people of God and we will only ever be that when we see, when we are secure in our identity as God's children. We'll only ever be comfortable with the friction and the tension and the difference between us and our culture when we begin to fear God above the approval of the culture around us. And if I can have a moment of honesty with you, church, As someone who has personally wrestled with acceptance and wanting to be liked, my fear is that that rolls off me onto our church. And we begin to have a church that is so concerned about being accepted by the culture around us that we begin to let go of our distinctiveness, our theological distinctiveness, our ethical distinctiveness, our holiness, the presence of God. My hope is that myself and the other staff here at Anchor can model for you what it looks like to be secure in our identity as God's children, so secure that we can be comfortable with the friction where we find ourselves butting up with the culture around us. That our fear is of God and not of disapproval around us. What would it look like for us to truly be God's holy, set-apart, distinct people 
What would it look like for you tomorrow as you go to work or university or as you parent your children? What would it look like for us to truly embody a countercultural collective? You know, one of the things that set the early church apart was a meal, the Lord's Supper. And the early church was actually accused of cannibalism because they drank the blood and ate the flesh of Jesus. The culture around them simply did not understand this sacrament that we call the Lord's Supper. And this morning, we're going to celebrate that meal together, a meal that, that unites us together as a family, as a community of people, and a meal that sets us as distinct from the culture around us because this is a meal for those who worship Jesus and have placed their faith and trust in the finished work. That bread on our four communion stations represents the body of Jesus that was broken. The grape juice there represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed and poured out for your forgiveness. And I want to invite those of you who love Jesus, who worship Him to come forward and to dip the bread in the grape juice and eat it, remembering that we are a set-apart people, that God has chosen you of the seven point whatever billion people who walk the face of this planet. He has called you out to be His we're a holy people. And so I invite you to come and celebrate this meal together. Secondly, we're going to respond in prayer. Our prayer team will be up the back. They have orange lanyards around there. They're next. They would love to pray for you. Whatever need you have this morning, they would love to bless you by praying for you. And finally, we will respond in our giving. In the next song, our giving containers will come around. We invite those of you who call Anchor home to give generously to the work of the gospel here at Anchor. If you're a guest, If you're not a follower of Jesus, you are under no obligation to give. Simply let those giving containers pass you by. Put your Connect card or your pen in there. And finally, we respond in worship. So I'm going to invite you to stand to church, pray over us as we worship our God together. So please stand. Let me pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your grace, for your goodness. God, for the times where we have failed to be the people that you call us to be, we thank you that you meet us with grace. Help us to be your people. Help us to be holy and distinct and set apart. God, we need you for this. We need your spirit. Fill us for this task. That our watching world would see our lives, our character, the way we live and say, if your God is anything like you, I want to worship you. Strengthen us for this task, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen.